Good morning, and welcome to On Target, a radio ministry of Village Bible Church in Hot Springs Village. We are located near the Coronado Center at 100 Ponderosa Way. Our Sunday morning service starts at 9.15 a.m. We hope you will enjoy and benefit from the sermon you will hear this morning. Now sit back and relax as you listen to a message by Senior Pastor Dr. Jason Lancaster. There are two truths about God's character that I love to sink my soul deep into. The first one is His sovereignty. His sovereignty. God is sovereign and in control of everything. And I don't know what language you like to use when you think about God's sovereignty, but the Bible teaches that God allows or causes or ordains everything. He's not responsible, accountable for evil, and yet somehow we see from the Word that He allows, causes, ordains everything. The book of Proverbs says that He even has ordained the outcome of the roll of dice. Psalm 139 even says that He has determined the exact number of days you will live. And this doctrine of sovereignty is is foundational. But the other character trait of God that is equally as powerful is that God is loving. He is sovereign. He is loving. His disposition toward us as His children is one of love and He's working for our good. His love is new every morning and extends throughout the day. And if you read the Bible, you're going to find these consistent themes in the, in the Word of God that He is sovereign and He is loving and you will buy into it and you'll be excited about it. But there is something that can shake your theology. There's something that can kind of rattle you in your heart. There's something that can make you question God's sovereignty and questions God's love. And that something is called pain. When pain and suffering come our way, it often distorts our view of God's sovereignty and love. And when things go wrong in our lives, it can get confusing. Where we go, God, we thought you were sovereign. We thought you were loving. Several years ago, Three college girls were driving at night in North Dakota in order to gaze at the stars. They were softball teammates at the local university, ages of 20, 21, and 22. And as they're out driving at night just to go look at stars, they accidentally drove into a pond and all three of them died. At that time, I was coaching my daughter and some of her friends in softball in Chicago. And if that had happened to my daughter and her friends, I would be devastated. And when things like this happen, where we mentally and emotionally try to come to grips with how God could let something like that to happen, if He is both sovereign and loving. And I know we all have these things that happen in our life. We go, God, what is going on? You're sovereign and loving, and yet look at this mess. How do we piece it all together? How do we interpret it? How do we relate to God? 
Well, this morning, that's where we're going. And the way we're going to get there is we're going to start by looking at the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, you have God's fingerprints and sovereignty all throughout the book. There's these little twists and turns where only God could be in charge. But the book of Ruth starts out on a note of suffering, on a note of pain. Later on, we'll look at the love story. It's going to be great. We're all going to laugh and celebrate. But right now, it starts with pain. And in the midst of this pain, we're going to see the sovereignty and love of God even in this drama. So let's go ahead and jump right in and start with the context. And this morning's going to be one long story. Not a lot of illustrations to try to stick with the story. If you've never studied a book of the Bible from beginning to end, this is a great place to start. It's short, and you can knock it out, all right? So stick with us. Look at verse 1. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. Stop. The book of Ruth is set in this 400-year span in Israel's history called the Judges Period. It runs through the time when the Israelites came into the Promised Land under Joshua until the first king. If you've ever read the book of Judges, the book of Judges gives you these snapshots of a, of a period characterized by the waywardness of God's people. All right, so have your finger here in Ruth and turn all the way back to the last chapter of Judges. It should be on the same page, right? All right, you can do this. So the last chapter of Judges is right there. The next page over. I shouldn't hear too many pages turning. Look at the last verse of the last chapter of Judges. Look what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Could you imagine living during that time? This is what would happen. It was amazing. This is a cycle. If you ever read Judges, here's, I'm going to give you a snapshot of Judges. This is what happens, all right? God's people are wayward. They're going after false gods. God punishes them by putting them under the dominion of another people group. The people feel this burden. They cry out. They repent. God, please deliver us. God delivers them by sending Judges. All right, Gideon, Deborah, Samson. And then the cycle starts all over again. The people, they're wayward. They are falling after their gods. God sends them and another people group to oppress them and have dominion over them. They cry out, God have mercy on us, and God delivers them. And then it starts all over again. Over and over and over and over and over again. That's the context of Ruth. That is where the story is set, right in the middle of that cycle. Look at verse 1 again. Ruth 1.1. 1, 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. If you were an ancient Israelite, you would understand that famines are from God. Famines are often assigned to the punishment of God. And if God needed any grounds for punishing his people, he certainly had it in the rampant worship of other deities. In the midst of this famine, during the time of Judges, 
we are introduced to a family. Verse 1 into verse 2. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malhon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they enter the land of Moab and remain there. Family of four. Husband, Elimelech. Wife, Naomi. Two boys, Malhon and Chilion, who leave their home in Bethlehem and travel to Moab. This is a very questionable move. They should not have done this. They are supposed to be God-fearing people, and they're living in Bethlehem. Did you know that Bethlehem is called the house of food, the house of bread? And since there's no longer food or bread in the house of bread and food, they pick up and leave and go to Moab. They are no longer living among God's people. They've decided to live with the Moabites. And by the way, the Moabites, some of their worship includes human sacrifice. Not a good choice here by this family to leave the house of bread to go live among the pagans. Now, I'm just, I'm just wondering, because I've talked to some of you, and some of you are contemplating your futures, you have some decisions to make, you're not quite sure what you're doing with your life on the next go-around, and I just want to ask you, what place does God factor into your decision-making? Is your decision-making all about what you lack? Money, comfort, security, and you're thinking, something's not working right here, so i got to make a move. I want to encourage you to be very careful because if you're not factoring God into your decision makings, you could make a decision, pick up, and leave, and when you land there, it's a disaster. That's what's going on here. That's what happens here. Look at the disaster. Verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and when she was left with her two sons, we don't know how he died, but the blunt statement of the text is that he died. <laughs> he left Bethlehem to avoid death, and what happens to him? He dies. And his two boys didn't fare any better. Look at verse 4 and 5. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. Shouldn't have done that. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. Then... Both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman were bereft of her two children and her husbands. We don't know how they died, but they died. And now Naomi is at the lowest of the low of the low of the low. Check it out. Famine causes her to move to a foreign land. She moves to the foreign land. Her husband dies. Her boys marry Moabite women, and we are told in the text that these women were childless for 10 years. And then after the fact, now who, her two boys are dead. Can you imagine being Naomi? Is there anything that could possibly get worse in your life? Husband's dead, boy's dead, no grandchildren, and you find yourself still stuck in a foreign land. 
the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Huh, there's some chatter, some chatter going on in Moab. Hey, there's, there's food once again in Israel. Huh, God must have visited his people. As Naomi says, he must have visited his people in giving them food. Huh, God is up to something. There is food once again in the land that she's originally from. Verse 7. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughter-in-laws were with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Get out of here. Go, go, go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and the dead. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Check it out. Naomi's like, hey, you guys got to go back. You got to go back to your mom's house. And when you get back there, you're going to find some good Moabite boys, which there are none, by the way. You're going to find some Moabite boys. You're going to get married and you're going to have kids. And that's going to be great. I'm going to go back and live my miserable life in Bethlehem. But you two need to go back with your moms, get married and have some kids. That's pretty much what she says. Verse 10. And they said to her, nah, no. We will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone against me. That is funny. I heard none of you laughing. But you hear what she's saying. She's like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. By the way, I'm not married. And I know you two ladies, you want husbands to have kids. So check this out. If I get married somehow, and then I have babies, are you two going to wait around for my boys, if I even have boys, to grow up and get married? No, it doesn't work like that. Go back. That's pretty dramatic. Pretty dramatic. But I want you to notice what she says in verse 13. For it is harder for me than for you. Look at the very end. For it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She is saying, I have nothing for you because God has messed up my life. She isn't saying that God could have stopped it, but he didn't. She isn't saying that God could have healed it, but he didn't. It's not that God failed to intervene, but she is saying that God has direct involvement in afflicting her. In fact, she says it was God's hand that has gone against her. And she's saying, look, ladies, you need to go back to Moab because God has his target set on me and you don't want to be caught in the crossfire. This morning, we're looking at Naomi's story. Next week, we're going to look at Ruth's story. 
But to tip you off, Orpah, one of the, the girls here, goes back. But Ruth, she's like, let's go. I'm all in with you. Let's go to Bethlehem. We'll see that story next week. So now, Ruth and Naomi roll up to Bethlehem. Look at verse 19. Skip down to verse 19. Verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? <laughs> it's been years since she's been there. <laughs> Didn't come back to visit. She's much older. And the women, they start chattering away. Is this, is this Naomi? Hey, everybody, look, Naomi's back. And this is, this is <laughs> look at verse 20. I can't believe she talks like this. Verse 20, she said, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt, dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? The name Naomi means pleasant and lovely. The name Mara means bitter. She's like, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me lovely. There is nothing lovely or pleasant about me. Call me bitter. One scholar has rendered it this way. He said, call me Mara, for the Almighty has cruelly marred me. I mean, is she like requesting a name change? I, I don't think so. I think this is going deeper than a name change. She is expressing her suffering. And she is attributing, she is attributing her suffering to God. She is blaming God. She says she left full, but the Lord has brought her back with nothing. Brutally honest. And I'm just wondering, there's no need to show any hands, but I'm, I'm wondering, have, have any of you ever interacted with God like that? I mean, does it even, does it sound like kind of borderline disrespectful? Have you, have you ever thought that maybe in your calamity that you would, you know, you're pointing the finger up a well. You ever like start pointing the finger at God? Does that make you uncomfortable? Is that okay to do? Is that theologically right? Is she crossing some boundaries here? I'm going to give you two ways that you can understand Naomi's interaction here with God, okay? Two ways. And I want you to process these, and I'm going to give you these two right now, and I hope you'll go away and you'll think about them and you'll think about your own life. Okay, two ways to, to understand Naomi's response to her suffering, all right? So let's, let's do this. Number one, we could say that Naomi needs a balanced perspective, right? We could say she needs a balanced perspective. You know, she understands God's sovereignty in her suffering. We, we think that she's got that one down just fine. But maybe... Maybe she's failing to see God's love and mercy and goodness. I mean, she's mistaken, right? God's not against her, right? There's a lot of grace in her life. There's food, once again, in Bethlehem. She has Ruth with her. And if Naomi would do a little family tree 
navigation, she would see others, oh, actually some hope for the future. But that's, that's another story for another time. But God has a history of turning hopeless situations around, and eventually he's going to do that in Naomi's life. But right now, Naomi is on the front end of it. You know, when you're on the front end of your suffering, you're not quite sure what God's going to do. You're on the front end. I have no idea what's going to happen. And, and on the front end, maybe you don't have a balanced perspective. So perhaps, perhaps, we could understand what's going on with Naomi, and we could just say, you know, Naomi, you're missing it. You don't have a balanced perspective. You've got the sovereignty piece down, but you're missing the love piece. Maybe that's the way we can understand it. But maybe one of the ways that we should understand, perhaps, what Naomi's doing here is number two. Naomi cries out because she does have a balanced perspective. I'm going to let that sink in for a moment. Naomi cries out because she does have a balanced perspective. Her cry comes from a heart that fully understands God's sovereignty and fully understands God's love, and that's why she's so upset. If God is sovereign and if he's loving, then why in the world is this happening to me? And my brothers and sisters, this Bible is full of people like that that they understand God's sovereignty and they understand God's love and they wonder, why is this happening? And that is something, you can write this down, that is something called a lament. It's something called a lament. The book of Psalms is filled with them. A lament where she understands God's sovereignty, she understands God's love, but she does not grasp what's happening to her now so it's a very fine line here and you, you got to be careful got to be careful this is not a complaining spirit i'll say it again this is not a complaining spirit that's constantly questioning or challenging god this is it's a humble heart where, where you come before the lord and you feel the pain and you start expressing your emotions and you're like god i don't understand why one of my favorite authors, Christopher Wright, Christopher Wright says this, and I find it helpful. He says, it seems indeed that it is precisely those who have the closest relationship with God who feel most at liberty to pour out their pain and protest to God without fear of reproach. Naomi's lament is loud, it's painful, and I don't think we should look at it as an act of defiance or turning her back on God, but it's a loud lament of faith and pressing into God. It's about being honest with God. It's not having a complaining spirit. It's not having a challenging, questioning spirit, but it's just bringing it all before God and say, God, if you're sovereign, if you're loving, why is this happening? I want to leave you with four, four little challenges here, four little takeaways you okay with this? Four takeaways that I learned from Jared C. Wilson. He mentions um, four great imitations of Naomi, and I find these four takeaways helpful. And the, you, you don't need to furiously write these down because I think they're somewhere in your bulletin, maybe on that handout sheet on the Q&A. But number one, number one, like Naomi, 
I can believe that God remains in charge even when life is bitter. I can believe that God remains in charge even when life is bitter. And my brothers and sisters, if some of you right now are kind of going through one of those bitter seasons, God is still in control. He's still sovereign. He still loves you. He's got you. He's not letting you go. Second takeaway, and this one's harder. Like Naomi, I can entrust family members and loved ones to God's care. I can entrust family members and loved ones to God's care. And then, you know, she kind of does that with Ruth. And I just look at that and I think, well, that's, that's hard for me because when some of your family members, maybe your kids, right, they're straying, maybe they're suffering. It's hard for me because when I see stuff going wrong with my kids, I'm like, you know, I want to fix that. I want to fix that. Well, a lot of times, like I say, God, it's up to you. You've got to fix that. If you've got straying kids, God, I can't fix it. I've been praying a long time. God, you've got to fix that. Please bring them back to you. Third takeaway, like Naomi, I can move toward life with God's people instead of hiding away in my own country. I can move toward life with God's people instead of hiding away in my own country. This one's really hard because when you're kind of going through a lot of stuff, what you want to do is kind of hide and do your own thing, but what you need to do is be around God's people. You got to be in fellowship, got to be in church, got to be in Sunday school, got to be in small group be a part of a church, join the church. I mean, you've got to be around God's people. The last thing you want to do in your suffering and in your bitterness is isolate yourself. And lastly, number four, like Naomi, I can be honest with God about my feelings and frustrations. I can be honest with God about my feelings and frustrations. You can pour out your heart. You can tell him what's going on. You can lament. And if, you, if this makes you uncomfortable, you can't find words for it, open up the book of Psalms and just find all those laments and just read those. They'll give you words for what you're feeling, the laments. There's many ways that we can imitate Naomi, but we know something she did not know. We know someone she did not know. We have much greater perspective in Naomi because we can look to Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, He knew that the Father was completely sovereign. He knew that the Father was completely loving. Do, do, we, do any of us disagree on that? Do we all agree? Jesus Christ knew that the Father completely sovereign Completely loving. We all agree on that. And yet, on the cross, what did he say? Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What? He knows his father completely sovereign, completely loved. Why have you forsaken me? That's his cry. Now, this why on the cross is not because he doesn't understand why God abandoned him, but this why is what he was experiencing because of your sin and my sin. 
being poured out on him, and the wrath of the Father was completely on him, and he felt completely forsaken. And this is the good news. This cry of forsakenness has led to your salvation. Through his sacrificial death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection three days later, all of us, all of us who put our faith in Jesus can be 100% sure that God will never forsake us. No matter what. Because Christ, forsaken by the Father in the sense of wrath, what he's feeling, what he's experiencing, wrath, why have you forsaken me? And his cry of forsakenness guarantees that every single person in here who puts their faith in Jesus will never, ever, ever experience the Father's forsakenness, ever. That's good news right there. That is good news. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what your lament, no matter what your trauma and drama that's going on right now, you need to know God is completely sovereign and He is completely loving and He will never, ever forsake you. We hope you enjoyed this message. It was preached recently at Village Bible Church. You can hear this message or let others know about it by visiting our website at vbchsv.org or call us at 922-0404. Meanwhile, have a blessed day as you walk along the way, guided by God's Word.